Hello and welcome. I am Luke Hunt and it was with that round of applause the World Heritage Committee meeting here in Bonn unanimously adopted the Australian Government's $2 billion plan to safeguard the future of the Great Barrier Reef. It was also a victory for Australian officials who had worked hard in order to meet the demands of the committee and ensure the Great Barrier Reef was not placed on its endangered list. Among them was Russell Reichelt, the chairman of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. I asked him to explain how the reef had come so perilously close to being classified as endangered. Well, the World Heritage process every year, a massive meeting somewhere in, uh, on the earth, uh, all about these wonderful sites. There's now 1,007 of them uh, worldwide. But the Barrier Reef is my special love and interest. And um, at the time it was listed in 1981, uh, the, the listing said if there was to be one marine site anywhere on the planet that would be listed for World Heritage, it would be the Great Barrier Reef. And uh, that's, the, that's the long backstory. But uh, we're here this year in Bonn, and we're in the last few days there's been a flurry of meetings. There's many Australian experts and, and officials here um, with a strong interest in explaining Australia's handling of the Great Barrier Reef and its protection. Uh, it's been hugely controversial uh, because of the scale of the system and the fact that it's iconic. Australia is held up as a tremendous manager of World Heritage properties. The other thing about this conference is that I've noticed um, a different role for the non-government organisations. That uh, is, it's incredibly important that all our, all parts of society have a voice, uh, and that e even in amongst the conservation movement, they don't all agree with each other. I mean, I've seen the um, uh, one Greenpeace, for instance, were particularly uh, strongly lobbying and have been now for a while for invoking what's called the, the World Heritage in Danger list for the Great Barrier Reef. And, and, and that's, a, that's a list for sites that have uh, been badly damaged or they've um, lost their, their intrinsic values that um, lead them to be World Heritage in the first place. Um, and the lobbying for that list is not supported by the Australian Government. I don't support it personally either because um, it wouldn't help our management of the reef to go on that list. Uh, we don't need more World Bank funding. We don't need all of the things that will come to some countries by being on that list. Um, uh, we have, we're able to invest wisely in the reef. The real problem for us is the scale of the pressures from climate change and catchments uh, are phenomenally big and they're essentially coming from outside this big World Heritage property. Can you give us uh, a bit more background on the government plan to uh, ensure the reef's future going forward? We're calling it Reef 2050. It's a long-term sustainability plan for the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area, an area the size of Germany or the United Kingdom, it's, um, Italy, for instance. They're all similar scale of the area of the Great Barrier Reef. The long-term plan runs out to 2050, so 35 years. Um, that's an appropriate time scale for a system that large. It, it doesn't. It, it changes day to day, like the weather, but the long-term trends and human pressures on this natural system uh, are, um, are decadal to century scale. So I think a, a five-year plan would be trivialising the challenge of managing the Barrier Reef. It's been a World Heritage property since uh, 81 and uh, 1981, and it's um, the management regimes in the Great Barrier Reef have grown in that time. 
It uh, was list, uh, cited by the reactive monitoring mission of the UNESCO in 2012 as the management of the marine park is the world gold standard. I mean, we have a, a thing called our Outlook Report, which uh, is a future look at the risks to the, the region. Um, last year, the IUCN, Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, adopted our model of reporting for every World Heritage Site, all of the natural sites globally. Uh, so we're, 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 I think, justifiably proud of the current management, but clearly we're failing the system still. Uh, we need to manage the runoff uh, from the land and agriculture, uh, urban expansions, ports and other things. Um, th there's a long list of um, issues, and these are now embodied in this long-term plan. The, the, the long-term sustainability plan um, is based around themes, biodiversity, the natural themes, but also the economic benefits, um, cultural and governance and funding. So it's a comprehensive strategic plan for this system. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority is a key player in that, but we recognise that, that we can't do it all. It's the uh, externalities for the system as much as anything. It's a plan that's owned by the two governments, the state government and the federal government. Uh, it's, it's signed, the plan has been inserted into an intergovernmental agreement signed by the, the national leader, the Prime Minister of Australia and the leader of the state of Queensland. So it's essentially the, the forces of law of the national and the state governments involved have been brought together in this one plan. So we're, I'm, I'm thrilled that we've got this plan. Uh, it's our total focus now from the Marine Park Authority will be to deliver. Uh, and I'm also um, pleased to, that the, the minister, the federal minister, has asked the Marine Park Authority to be the group that establishes the monitoring and assessing of whether that plan's being delivered. If it had been listed as endangered, what would Australia have incurred because of that? Well, from the Australian point of view, governmentally, it's uh, seen as a shameful thing to have been put on this list because we have ma massive systems in place to protect it. So wh where have we gone wrong? Could we have done better? Uh, that, that's the, the national pride aspect. The other strong one is the reputation of the system itself. It, it's a massive draw card for uh, tourism and um, there's fear amongst the industry sectors that rely on that tourism that they think a listing in danger would somehow interact you know, badly with that, that industry. Fundamentally I think it's that there's a, a massive pride. Every Australian knows about the reef. They don't want to think of it as being badly looked after by their own governments uh, and it's, it would be that feeling that uh, a feeling of sense of having uh, let down the system that we all relate to so strongly. That's probably the biggest impact in Australia if, if that were, if it was to be listed in danger. Uh, going back to your point about dif differences within the environmental movement, it's been well covered that Greenpeace's main objective seems to be the abolition of coal production in Australia. And I mean, I've been told by other environmentalists that the Great Barrier Reef is actually seen as collateral damage in that it's part of the process as Greenpeace been accused of just using the Great Barrier Reef to achieve its, its other objectives, which includes having coal mining banned in Australia. And then you have the World Wildlife Fund, which has come out and basically said they support the government plan, which is over, to be done over 10 years and uh, involve two billion Australian dollars. How do you come to terms with these different agendas? I mean, you can't please everybody. I've, I've seen these different agendas running uh, and um, uh, I've felt the uh, pressures of these agendas personally 
having um, been involved in the decision to expand one of the ports uh, some years ago now for this is the Abbott Point decision uh, because uh, many of the people opposed to that particular proposal um, were not particularly concerned with the immediate impacts of that port. They were mainly concerned with the fact that it was an outlet for coal to, um, from these uh, new coal fields being opened up in central Queensland. The problem I have is that I've, I um, cleave strongly to sticking to the facts and the truth and, the, and I figure the best way to navigate between all of the conflicting interests that you have in something as large as, as, as the size of Germany um, with uh, all of these interests is to stick to the truth and stick to the risks. We are very clear that the greatest risk to the reef is climate change. It's the burning of fossil fuel and yet here we are agreeing to a port that will export coal. Uh, the problem I have with, with that is that that port is, was relatively minor. In fact, if you removed all the ports from the Great Barrier Reef and all the shipping, the state of the coral system would be virtually unchanged from what it is now. It, uh, the biggest impacts are uh, the land runoff and the 150 years of agriculture on the reef. So having said that about the ports, um, it's still not clear to me that where the future of coal is going globally. And, and it seems disingenuous to me to talk about um, one country changing its, its coal exports without addressing the global demand for coal, the alternative technologies, uh, the fact that it's actually quite clean coal by comparison to many other sources. Now, I'm not a coal expert, but I could sense that this debate was being trivialised and ignoring the complexities of global energy demand uh, for the want of achieving a, a local agenda which was within Australia and to do with coal. So I'm, I'm neutral on the coal as an industry. I, I, I feel that it will hopefully soon wind down and alternative energies for the developing world, for instance, and all the industrialised worlds will be replaced by low emission technologies. Um, having said all that, our legislation in terms of managing the reef is about the reef. It's about um, the impacts of people visiting the reef, protecting it from shipping incidents. Coastal development is outside the reef. Uh, it's on the land, but we take a strong interest in it. So I've found the public debate around coal and the reef incredibly confusing. And if I have sympathy for, for anyone in this debate, it's the, it's the general public trying to understand and make sense of it. It's been very confusing. Okay. On the shipping side alone, there was that incident a few years ago where a Chinese ship ran aground. What was the upshot with that and what were the ramifications for the reef but also uh, have we heard from the ship's owner? The ship called the Shen Neng One was a 220 metre long coal carrier fully loaded with coal, probably 60, I can't remember, 60 or 70,000 tonnes of coal, pulling about 13 metre, 14 metre draft. The crew were tired they just left Gladstone, uh, they didn't communicate well with each other and made a navigational error and slid up onto a shoal that's about 10 metres deep and it wasn't an abrupt collision, it slithered onto this coral system and then for six days every tidal cycle it walked across that reef, crumbling coral over a three kilometre by 220 metre, it's the largest grounding scar on a coral reef recorded, uh, it left um, a billiard table with pockets of uh, coral rubble where there was living things before. Uh, the weight of the ship uh, caused the coral to turn into marble in some places, it's so heavy. But the entire coat of paint on the f bottom of that ship was wiped off clean. It was clean steel and the paint was several 
inches or five or six centimetres thick, which is what they, they keep painting these vessels, and underneath the surface layer of paint was tributyl tin, which is now a banned substance. So it's a heavy metal that you've smeared over 50 hectares of coral reef. From my point of view as a reef manager, the great tragedy is it's still there. And, and it will be there for hundreds and hundreds of years because it's heavy and it's worked its way into the pockets. It can be cleaned up. Uh, what it, while it's there, it'll prevent the recovery of that patch. of the, It's within the World Heritage Area. And I think it behoves the shipping industry, the ship owners and the ship's insurers to take action to make sure it's cleaned up. That's where I'm coming from. Uh, and from what I understand, though, the ship's owners, owners in China have not been forthcoming in paying the bills, which I think was put at somewhere in the vicinity of $50 million. That's right. Insurance statute of limitations runs out three years after an incident. In other words, you have to claim by then. Now, we made it clear early that there was significant damage needing cleaning up. Before the three years ran out, the Australian government, um, my authority on behalf of the Australian Government initiated legal proceedings to recover the costs of cleaning up the reef. It's in excess of 50 million. Uh, the legal case is still running so I don't want to give precise figures. Um, I'm hoping that as a, uh, the Australian Government is what they call a model litigant. I, we have to actually at any point we'll negotiate. If, if the uh, Shenzhen Energy Company Chinese company, uh, the insurers, the London Protection and Indemnity Club and their rep legal representatives. I hope that the, while we will maintain the legal case um, and it's set down now for a hearing in April 2016 uh, which is six years after the incident to the month and in time up till then uh, it may well be negotiated that that be cleaned up. It's unconscionable really to think that uh, a massive amount of heavy metal toxin can be left on the world's premier marine world heritage site and not have everyone anxious to clean it up as soon as possible. Uh, getting back to the uh, World Heritage Conference, often there seems to be a lot more politics than there uh, is genuine debate about the issues confronting the world and the heritage sites. One of them was brought forward by the Indian authorities who wanted New Delhi listed as a World Heritage City, but some of the authorities in, in India had it dropped at the last minute because they saw it as being too British and they didn't want British achievements recognised under the World Heritage System. H how are you finding the politics uh, uh, versus the realities going on around here in Bonn at the moment? Well, it is, um, it is a big, complex machine, the World Heritage Convention. It has elements. There's, there's two big streams to it, the natural sites, beautiful environmental areas, and then there's the cultural sites, which are, might be a statue somewhere or the centre of London, uh, the uh, Westminster Cathedral, the Cologne Cathedral that I saw the other day. Um, you see the little symbol, Mondial, Patrimony Mondial, World Heritage, and... Um, so it's a big diverse thing and of course intensely political. You'd have to say that the committee and, and its machinery, it has operational guidelines. At any one time 21 countries sit on a decision making body but I think there's some 190 signatories countries to it. So you have 21 countries um, determining the future listings or delistings, whatever of these areas that uh, the local people love and they wouldn't be nominating them if they didn't. And quite often the country that's nominating it isn't on the committee, so they don't have a right to speak. They, uh, uh, they'll be trying to influence and, and inform their colleagues who are on the voting committee. The most extraordinary stories and pressures, last year in Doha, in um, Qatar, the conflict between in, in the Middle East was raised because there was a site 
that was uh, in, in a conflict for a totally other, and a different reason than its cultural heritage um, between the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. Some high visibility, global scale political issues can suddenly become an issue for a small cultural area that might be 2,000 year old rock wall, which is of, of importance to the, the local people. Yeah, the, the politics is incredibly intense. What's struck me about this conference is that I, I don't want to sound condescending, but when you look at the problems facing the Great Barrier Reef and the issues confronting it in terms of global warming or, or the coal industry, it actually seems to pale when compared when you're listening to what's happening to World Heritage Sites, particularly in the Middle East these days, the death and destruction, uh, the uh, shooter at in Tunisia last weekend was apparently radicalised in a city, the third holiest city in Mecca, which, is rec- which has World Heritage listing. I mean, how does a committee deal with these kinds of places and these kinds of cities? It's extraordinary what's happening. It's like another world war, particularly when you see and feel it here. And I find that far more overwhelming than the issues confronting the Great Barrier Reef. I think it's a... Um, uh, we're seeing the human condition here playing out. I mean, one of the great things about humans is that they're highly competent at living with ambiguity. You know, they're able to... Uh, uh, you know, they're able to downsize a corporation while, while building morale. You know, they're, um, they're able to uh, uh, attach the uh, values of a 2,000-year-old uh, statue when there's a million displaced people next door. I mean, we, we have to live with those ambiguities, sadly, as, as humans. I noticed the, at this meeting it's been very strong in, in the opening speeches. Chancellor Merkel uh, made it very clear that this, uh, in solving the glo- geopolitical crises, uh, she was making a plea to not forget the cultural and the other aspects of our humanity. Uh, I got that in the sense that it doesn't belittle the terrible human tragedies. It's a reminder that um, we also have other values. Um, it might be a bit like um, when you know two countries have been in conflict. The first thing that uh, once the the fighting stops is to uh, exchange scientists and artists. You know, it's um, th- there's a, a gentleness to that and a, and a spirituality that I think um, probably we should remember. But it doesn't mean you don't get on and solve those geopolitical problems as well. The politicisation of the World Heritage Committee has become a major issue, but this type of lobbying was not in the Australian playbook, which partially explains why their plan for the reef's future was so warmly received, with delegates from all 21 countries speaking up and praising the Australian effort. Even environmentalists spoke in favour of the plan, including Dermot O'Gorman from the World Wildlife Fund. So today's decision by the World Heritage Committee um, was a good decision. Um, It uh, both recognises the progress that the Australian government has made and the Queensland government has made, but it also puts them on probation for the next five years. um, And in 18 months' time, they have to report back um, on what they've done because... Whilst plans are plans, the real action has to start now. Um, and uh, we've got 18 months to, to be able to show uh, what Australia is doing to turn around the decline in the health of the Great Barrier Reef. Perhaps most important was the appearance of the Australian Environment Minister, Greg Hunt, at the conference. I asked him what his government would do next. Firstly, I'm uh, delighted that the world has responded not just unanimously but overwhelmingly uh, and endorsed the decision but also 
Australia's role in leadership. Um, the, the international environmental community, the leadership of nations has today uh, praised Australia. They have set out the fact that what we have done is a model for the world and as uh, indeed the convention chair uh, Maria Burma has said, uh, Australia is a role model. And I think that that's very important for young Australians to be able to recognise that uh, Australia is a role model. Um, some of the critics may have uh, perhaps uh, some political intentions. Everybody should now sit back, acknowledge that uh, a body such as the World Heritage Committee, which doesn't hesitate to criticise, to make recommendations, has unanimously and overwhelmingly endorsed Australia. But that's uh, where we're at now. Immediately, though, the job is to take what we have already done and to build on it. That means the water quality improvements. Uh, for me, the, the true test of success is whether we further reduce uh, sediment and nitrogen and pesticides, whether we make deep inroads into the crown of thorns and whether we help provide the resilience for the reef to deal with the long-term challenge of climate change. Uh, so these are things which we can do. The immediate actions, uh, right now I've already spoken with the Queensland uh, Deputy Premier about a joint implementation task force. We have uh, the meetings of the uh, expert scientific panel and the Reef Advisory Committee and only uh, last week uh, we identified and named more than 20 Green Army teams to have young people in the field uh, over the next 12 months working on reef water quality. It sounds like you'll be employing the converse, uh, conservationists. Well the Green Army is actually about getting young people to do just that, to be passionate about the environment but to pay them to do physical work. So we do have a very significant uh, budget, uh, $2 billion over 10 years, an additional $200 million uh, for water quality and uh, in particular that doesn't count the Green Army which is a $700 million project which allows us to have young people in the field. So they will be doing uh, mangrove rehabilitation, riverbank recovery, sand dune stabilisation. Uh, they'll be helping to reduce runoff and then we'll be working cooperatively with the farmers. So there's a decision today but the most important thing for me going forwards is the physical work to reduce the, uh, the runoff which has an impact on water quality. And the key dates seem to be uh, 2016, 20, uh, and 2019 and 2020. Can you exp uh, give us a little bit more information please on uh, what's expected of Australia over those dates? Um, so the uh, committee has uh, unanimously rejected any reference to in danger. So Australia's now returned to what's called the normal cycle of reporting. Every five years we produce an outlook report which is a scientific review of the health of the reef. That's due in late 2019 for a 2020 uh, periodic review by the uh, World Heritage Committee. Um, that's what we proposed. The second thing is we also propose that two years from now uh, we'll put in an investment update as to how the investment's going. Although we've actually jumped the gun and today tabled uh, an early summary of investment uh, within the reef. So I think uh, people have been delighted and surprised and we've just announced $8 million in terms of uh, monitoring uh, 
by the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority of water quality. And finally, a, a word from the Prime Minister. Uh, what was his response? I spoke with the Prime Minister just a few minutes ago. He was obviously delighted by the outcome, particularly delighted by the fact that the decision was unanimous and overwhelming. But interestingly, uh, and most importantly, he said it's time to get down uh, to do work. This is one of his passions. For me, it's the work of my life along with climate change. But for him, it's his environmental uh, passion along with the Antarctic. And uh, he wants and said immediately, let's get down to, to work in terms of making sure that water quality improves. And uh, as a minister, you couldn't ask for more support. And it was on that note that the Australian delegation packed their bags and left Germany for home. The task ahead is big, but now they can claim to have the world's premier body responsible for heritage sites around the world on their side. This is Luke Hunt, and you have been listening to a podcast on behalf of The Diplomat.